section two of psychology of the unconscious by carl jung this librivox recording is in the public domain section two the oedipus problem with further investigations into the nature of the repressed complexes a very astonishing situation was revealed the parental influence on children is something so well recognized and understood that to call attention to it sounds much like a banality however here an extraordinary discovery was made for in tracing out the feelings and emotions of adults it became evident that this influence was paramount not only for children but for adults as well that the entire direction of lives was largely determined quite unconsciously by the parental associations and that although adults the emotional side of their nature was still infantile in type and demanded unconsciously the infantile or childish relations freud traces out the commencement of the infantile attachment for the parents in this wise in the beginning the child derives its first satisfaction and pleasure from the mother in the form of nutrition and care for its wants in this first act of suckling freud sees already a kind of sexual pleasure for he apparently identifies the pleasure principle and the sexual instinct and considers that the former is primarily rooted in the latter at this early time commence such various infantile actions unconnected with nutrition as thumb-sucking various movements of the body as rubbing boring pulling and other manifestations of a definite interest in its own body a delight in nakedness the pleasure exhibited in inflicting pain on some object and its opposite the pleasure from receiving pain all of these afford the child pleasure and satisfaction and because they seem analogous to certain perversions in adults they are called by freud the polymorphous perverse sexuality of childhood the character of these instinctive actions which have nothing to do with any other person and through which the child attains pleasure from its own body caused freud to turn this phase of life as autoerotic after havelock ellis however with the growth of the child there is a parallel development of the psychic elements of its sexual nature and now the mother the original object of its love primarily determined by its helplessness and need acquires a new valuation the beginnings of the need for a love object to satisfy the craving or libido of the child are early in evidence and following along sex lines in general the little son prefers the mother and the daughter the father after the usual preference of the parents at this early time children feel deeply the enormous importance of their parents and their entire world is bounded by the family circle all the elements of the ego which the child possesses have now become manifest love jealousy curiosity hate etc and those instincts are directed in the greatest degree towards the objects of their libido namely the parents with the growing ego of the child there is a development of strong wishes and desires demanding satisfaction which can only be gratified by the mother therefore there is aroused in the small son the feeling of jealousy and anger towards the father in whom he sees a rival for the affection of the mother and whom he would like to replace 
this desire in the soul of the child freud calls the oedipus complex in recognition of its analogy to the tragedy of king oedipus who was drawn by his fate to kill his father and win his mother for a wife freud presents this as the nuclear complex of every neurosis at the basis of this complex some trace of which can be found in every person freud sees a definite incest wish towards the mother which only lacks the quality of consciousness because of moral reactions this wish is quickly subjected to repression through the operation of the incest barrier a postulate he compares to the incest taboo found among inferior peoples at this time the child is beginning to develop its typical sexual curiosity expressed in the question where do i come from the interest and investigation of the child into this problem aided by observations and deductions from various actions and attitudes of the parents who have no idea of the watchfulness of the child lead him because of his imperfect knowledge and immature development into many false theories and ideas of birth these infantile sexual theories are held by freud to be determinative in the development of the child's character and also for the contents of the unconscious as expressed in a future neurosis these various reactions of the child and his sexual curiosity are entirely normal and unavoidable and if his development proceeds in an orderly fashion then at the time of definite object choice he will pass smoothly over from the limitations of the family attachment out into the world and find therein his independent existence however if the libido remains fixed on the first chosen object so that the growing individual is unable to tear himself loose from these familial ties then the incestuous bond is deepened with the developing sexual instinct and its accompanying need of a love object and the entire future of the young personality endangered for with the development of the incestuous bond the natural repressions deepen because the moral censor cannot allow these disturbing relations to become clear to the individual therefore the whole matter is repressed more deeply into the unconscious and even a feeling of positive enmity and repulsion towards the parents is often developed in order to conceal and overcompensate for the impossible situation actually present this persistence of the attachment of the libido to the original object and the inability to find in this a suitable satisfaction for the adult need interferes with the normal development of the psychosexual character and it is due to this that the adult retains that infantilism of sexuality which plays so great a role in determining the instability of the emotional life which so frequently leads into the definite neuroses these were the conclusions reached and the ground on which freudian psychology rested regarding the etiology of the neurosis and the tendencies underlying normal human mechanisms when dr carl jung the most prominent of freud's disciples and the leader of the zurich school found himself no longer able to agree with freud's findings in certain particulars although the phenomena which freud observed and the technique of psychoanalysis developed by freud were the material on which jung worked and the value of which he clearly emphasizes the differences which have developed lay in his understanding and interpretation of the phenomena observed beginning with the conception of libido itself as a term used to connote sexual hunger and craving albeit the meaning of the word sexual was extended by freud to embrace a much wider significance than common usage has assigned it jung was unable to confine himself to this limitation 
he conceived this longing this urge or push of life as something extending beyond sexuality even in its wider sense he saw in the term libido a concept of unknown nature comparable to bergson's elan vital a hypothetical energy of life which occupies itself not only in sexuality but in various physiological and psychological manifestations such as growth development hunger and all the human activities and interests this cosmic energy or urge manifested in the human being he calls libido and compares it with the energy of physics although recognizing in common with freud as well as with many others the primal instinct of reproduction as the basis of many functions and present-day activities of mankind no longer sexual in character he repudiates the idea of still calling them sexual even though their development was a growth originally out of the sexual sexuality in its various manifestations jung sees as most important channels occupied by libido but not the exclusive ones through which libido flows this is an energetic concept of life and from this viewpoint this hypothetical energy of life or libido is a living power used instinctively by man in all the automatic processes of his functioning such very processes being but different manifestations of this energy by virtue of its quality of mobility and change man through his understanding and intelligence has the power consciously to direct and use his libido in definite and desired ways in this conception of jung will be seen an analogy to bergson who speaks of this change this movement and becoming this self-creation call it what you will as the very stuff and reality of our being in developing the energetic conception of libido and separating it from freud's sexual definition jung makes possible the explanation of interest in general and provides a working concept by which not only the specifically sexual but the general activities and reactions of man can be understood if a person complains of no longer having interest in his work or of losing interest in his surroundings then one understands that his libido is withdrawn from this object and that in consequence the object itself seems no longer attractive whereas as a matter of fact the object itself is exactly the same as formerly in other words it is the libido that we bestow upon an object that makes it attractive and interesting the causes for the withdrawal of libido may be various and are usually quite different from those that the persons offer in explanation it is the task of psychoanalysis to discover the real reasons which are usually hidden and unknown on the other hand when an individual exhibits an exaggerated interest or places an overemphasis upon an idea or situation then we know there is too much libido here and that we may find as a consequence a corresponding depletion elsewhere this leads directly into the second point of difference between jung's views and those of freud this is concerned with those practically universal childish manifestations of sexuality called by freud polymorphous perverse because of their similarity to those abnormalities of sexuality which occur in adults and are called perversions jung takes exception to this viewpoint he sees in the various manifestations of childhood the precursors or forerunners of the later fully developed sexuality and instead of considering them perverse he considers them preliminary expressions of sexual colouring he divides human life into three stages the first stage up to about the third or fourth year generally speaking he calls the pre-sexual stage for there he sees the libido or life energy occupied chiefly in the function of nutrition and growth and he draws an analogy between this period and that of the caterpillar stage of the butterfly the second stage includes the years from this time until puberty and this he speaks of as the pre-pubertal stage the third period is that from puberty onward and can be considered the time of maturity 
it is in the earliest stage the period of which varies greatly in different individuals that are fully inaugurated those various manifestations which have so marked a sexual colouring that there can be no question of their relationship although at that time sexuality in the adult meaning of the word does not exist ewing explains the polymorphism of these phenomena as arising from a gradual movement of the libido from exclusive service in the function of nutrition into new avenues which successively open up with the development of the child until the final inauguration of the sexual function proper at puberty normally these childish bad habits are gradually relinquished until the libido is entirely withdrawn from these immature phases and with the ushering in of puberty for the first time appears in the form of an undifferentiated sexual primitive power clearly forcing the individual towards division budding etc however if in the course of its movement from the function of nutrition to the sexual function the libido is arrested or retarded at any phase then a fixation may result creating a disturbance in the harmony of the normal development for although the libido is retarded and remains clinging to some childish manifestation time goes on and the physical growth of the child does not stand still soon a great contrast is created between the infantile manifestations of the emotional life and the needs of the more adult individual and the foundation is thus prepared for either the development of a definite neurosis or else for those weaknesses of character or symptomatic disturbances which are not sufficiently serious to be called a neurosis one of the most active and important forms of childish libido occupation is in fantasy-making the child's world is one of imagery and make-believe where he can create for himself that satisfaction and enjoyment which the world of reality so often denies as the child grows and real demands of life are made upon him it becomes increasingly necessary that his libido be taken away from his fantastic world and used for the required adaptation to reality needed by his age and condition until finally for the adult the freedom of the whole libido is necessary to meet the biological and cultural demands of life instead of thus employing the libido in the real world however certain people never relinquish the seeking for satisfaction in the shadowy world of fantasy and even though they make certain attempts at adaptation they are halted and discouraged by every difficulty and obstacle in the path of life and are easily pulled back into their inner psychic world this condition is called a state of introversion it is concerned with the past and the reminiscences which belong thereto situations and experiences which should have been completed and finished long ago are still dwelt upon and lived with images and matters which were once important but which normally have no significance for their later age are still actively influencing their present lives the nature and character of these fantasy products are legion and are easily recognized in the emotional attitudes and pretensions the childish delusions and exaggerations the prejudices and inconsistencies which people express in manifold forms the actual situation is inadequately faced small matters are reacted towards in an exaggerated manner or else a frivolous attitude is maintained where real seriousness is demanded in other words there is clearly manifested an inadequate psychic adaptation towards reality which is quite to be expected from the child but which is very discordant in the adult the most important of these past influences is that of the parents because they are the first objects of the developing childish love and afford the first satisfaction and pleasure to the child they become the models for all succeeding efforts as freud has worked out this he called the nuclear or root complex because this influence was so powerful it seemed to be the determining factor in all later difficulties in the life of the individual in this phase of the problem 
lies the third great difference between jung's interpretation of the absurd phenomena and that of freud jung definitely recognizes that there are many neurotic persons who clearly exhibited in their childhood the same neurotic tendencies that are later exaggerated also that an almost overwhelming effect on the destiny of these children is exercised by the influence of the parents the frequent over-anxiety or tenderness the lack of sympathy or understanding in other words the complexes of the parent reacting upon the child and producing in him love admiration fear distrust hate revolt the greater the sensitiveness and impressionability of the child the more he will be stamped with the familial environment and the more he will unconsciously seek to find again in the world of reality the model of his own small world with all the pleasures and satisfactions or disappointments and unhappinesses with which it was filled this condition to be sure is not a recognized or a conscious one for the individual may think himself perfectly free from this past influence because he is living in the real world and because actually there is a great difference between the present conditions and that of his childish past he sees all this intellectually but there is a wide gap between the intellectual grasp of a situation and the emotional development and it is the latter realm wherein lies the disharmony however although many ideas and feelings are connected with the parents analysis reveals very often that they are only subjective and that in reality they bear little resemblance to the actual past situation therefore jung speaks no longer of the real father and mother but he uses the term imago or image to represent the father or mother because the feelings and fantasies frequently do not deal with the real parents but with the distorted and subjective image created by the imagination of the individual following this distinction jung sees in the oedipus complex of freud only a symbol for the childish desire towards the parents and for the conflict which this craving evokes and cannot accept the theory that in this early stage of childhood the mother has any real sexual significance for the child the demands of the child upon the mother the jealousy so often exhibited are at first connected with the role of the mother as protector caretaker and supplier of nutritive wants and only later with the germinating eroticism does the child's love become admixed with the developing sexual quality the chief love objects are still the parents and he naturally continues to seek and to find in them satisfaction for all his desires in this way the typical conflict is developed which in the son is directed towards the father and in the daughter towards the mother this jealousy of the daughter towards the mother is called the electro complex from the myth of electra who took revenge on her mother for the murder of the husband because she was in this way deprived of her father normally as puberty is attained the child gradually becomes more or less freed from his parents and upon the degree in which this is accomplished depends his health and future well-being this demand of nature upon the young individual to free himself from the bonds of his childish dependency and to find in the world of reality his independent existence is so imperious and dominating that it frequently produces in the child the greatest struggles and severest conflicts the period being characterized symbolically as a self-sacrifice by jung it frequently happens that the young person is so closely bound in the family relations that it is only with the greatest difficulty that he can attain any measure of freedom and then only very imperfectly so that the libido sexualis can only express itself in certain feelings and fantasies which clearly reveal the existence of the complex until then entirely hidden and unrealized now commences the secondary struggle against the unfilial 
and immoral feelings with a consequent development of intense resistances expressing themselves in irritation anger revolt and antagonism against the parents or else in an especially tender submissive and yielding attitude which overcompensates for the rebellion and reaction held within this struggle and conflict gives rise to the unconscious fantasy of self-sacrifice which really means the sacrificing of the childish tendencies and love type in order to free libido for his nature demands that he attain the capacity for the accomplishment of his own personal fulfilment the satisfaction of which belongs to the developed man and woman this conception has been worked out in detail by jung in the book which is herein presented to english readers we now come to the most important of jung's conceptions in that it bears practically upon the treatment of certain types of the neuroses and stands theoretically in direct opposition to freud's hypothesis while recognizing fully the influence of the parents and of the sexual constitution of the child jung refuses to see in this infantile past the real cause for the later development of the illness he definitely places the cause of the pathogenic conflict in the present moment and considers that in seeking for the cause in the distant past one is only following the desire of the patient wishes to withdraw himself as much as possible from the present important period the conflict is produced by some important task or duty which is essentially biologically and practically for the fulfilment of the ego of the individual but before which an obstacle arises from which he shrinks and thus halted cannot go on with this interference in the path of progression libido is stored up and a regression takes place whereby there occurs a reanimation of past ways of libido occupation which were entirely normal to the child but which for the adult are no longer of value these regressive infantile desires and fantasies now alive and striving for satisfaction are converted into symptoms and in these surrogate forms obtain a certain gratification thus creating the external manifestations of the neurosis therefore jung does not ask from what psychic experience or a point of fixation in childhood the patient is suffering but what is the present duty or task he is avoiding or what obstacle in his life's path he is unable to overcome what is the cause of his regression to past psychic experiences following this theory jung expresses the view that the elaborate fantasies and dreams produced by these patients are really forms of compensation or artificial substitutes for the unfulfilled adaptation to reality the sexual content of these fantasies and dreams is only apparently and not actually expressive of a real sexual desire or incest wish but is a regressive employment of sexual forms to symbolically express a present-day need when the attainment of the present ego demand seems too difficult or impossible and no adaptation is made to what is possible for the individual's capability with this statement jung throws a new light on the work of analytic psychology and on the conception of the neurotic symptoms and renders possible of understanding the many apparent incongruities and conflicting observations which have been so disturbing to the critics it now becomes proper to ask what has been established by all this mass of investigation into the soul and what is its value not only as a therapeutic measure for the neurotic sufferer but also for the normal human being first and perhaps most important is the recognition of a definite psychological determinism instead of human life being filled with foolish meaningless or purposeless actions errors and thoughts it can be demonstrated that no expression or manifestation of the psyche however trifling or inconsistent in appearance is really lawless or unmotivated 
only a possession of the technique is necessary in order to reveal to any one desirous of knowing the existence of the unconscious determinants of his mannerisms trivial expressions acts and behaviour their purpose and significance this leads into the second fundamental conception which is perhaps even less considered than the foregoing and that is the relative value of the conscious mind and thought it is the general attitude of people to judge themselves by their surface motives to satisfy themselves by saying or thinking this is what i want to do or say or i intended to do thus and so but somehow what one thought one intended to say or expected to do is very often the contrary of what actually is said or done every one has had these experiences when the gap between the conscious thought and action was gross enough to be observed it is also a well-known experience to consciously desire something very much and when it is obtained to discover that this in no wise satisfied or lessened the desire which was then transferred to some other object thus one became cognizant of the fact that the feeling and idea presented by consciousness as the desire was an error what is the difficulty in these conditions evidently some other directing force than that of which we are aware is at work dr g stanley hall uses a very striking symbol when he compares the mind to an iceberg floating in the ocean with one-eighth visible above the water and seven-eighths below the one-eighth above being that part called conscious and the seven-eighths below that which we call the unconscious the influence and controlling power of their unconscious desires over our thoughts and acts are in this relative proportion faint glimmers of other motives and interests than those we accept or which we believe often flit into consciousness these indications if studied or valued accurately would lead to the realization that consciousness is but a single stage and but one form of expression of mind therefore its dictum is but one often untrustworthy approach to the great question as to what is man's actual psychic accomplishment and as to what in particular is the actual soul development of the individual a further contribution of equal importance has been the empiric development of a dynamic theory of life the conception that life is in a state of flux movement leading either to construction or destruction through the development man has reached he has attained the power by means of his intelligence and understanding of definitely directing to a certain extent this life energy or libido into avenues which serve his interest and bring a real satisfaction for the present day when man through ignorance and certain inherent tendencies fails to recognize his needs or his power to fulfil them or to adapt himself to the conditions of reality of the present time there is then produced that reanimation of infantile paths by which an attempt is made to gain fulfilment or satisfaction through the production of symptoms or attitudes the acceptance of these statements demands the recognition of the existence of an infantile sexuality and the large part played by it in the later life of the individual because of the power and imperious influence exerted by the parents upon the child and because of the unconscious attachment of his libido to the original object the mother and the perseverance of this first love model in the psyche he finds it very difficult on reaching the stage of adult development and the time for seeking a love object outside of the family to gain a satisfactory model it is exceedingly important for parents and teachers to recognize the requirements of nature which beginning with puberty imperiously demand of the young individual a separation of himself from the parent stem and the development of an independent existence 
in our complex modern civilization this demand of nature is difficult enough of achievement for the child who has the heartiest and most intelligent cooperation of his parents and environment but for the one who has not only to contend with his own inner struggle for his freedom but has in addition the resistance of his parents who would hold him in his childhood at any cost because they cannot endure the thought of his separation from them the task becomes one of the greatest magnitude it is during this period when the struggle between the childish inertia and nature's urge becomes so keen that there occur the striking manifestations of jealousy criticism irritability all usually directed against the parents of defiance of parental authority of runaways and various other psychic and nervous disorders known to all this struggle which is the first great task of mankind and the one which requires the greatest effort is that which is expressed by hume as the self-sacrifice motive the sacrifice of the childish feelings and demands and of the irresponsibility of this period and the assumption of the duties and tasks of an individual existence it is this great theme which jung sees as the real motive lying hidden in the myths and religions of man from the beginning as well as in the literature and artistic creations of both ancient and modern time in which he works out with the greatest wealth of detail and painstaking effort in the book herewith presented this necessitates a recognition and revaluation of the enormous importance and influence of the ego and the sexual instinct upon the thought and reaction of man and also predicates a displacement of the psychological point of gravity from the will and intellect to the realm of the emotions and feelings the desired end is a synthesis of these two paths or the use of the intellect constructively in the service of the emotions in order to gain for the best interest of the individual some sort of cooperative reaction between the two no one dealing with analytic psychology can fail to be struck by the tremendous and unnecessary burdens which man has placed upon himself and how greatly he has increased the difficulties of adaptation by his rigid intellectual views and moral formulas and by his inability to admit to himself that he is actually just a human being imperfect and containing within himself all manner of tendencies good and bad all striving for some satisfactory goal further that the refusal to see himself in this light instead of as an ideal person in no way alters the actual condition and that in fact through the cheap pretence of being able only to consider himself as a very virtuous person or as shocked and hurt when observing the sins of others he actually is prevented from developing his own character and bringing his own capacities to their fullest expressions there is frequently expressed among people the idea of how fortunate it is that we cannot see each other's thoughts and how disturbing it would be if our real feelings could be read but what is so shameful in these secrets of the soul they are in reality our own egoistic desires all striving longing wishing for satisfaction for happiness those desires which instinctively crave their own gratification but which can only be really fulfilled by adapting them to the real world and to the social group why is it that it is so painful for man to admit that the prime influence in all human endeavour is found in the ego itself in its desires wishes needs and satisfactions in short in its need for self-expression and self-perpetuation the evolutionary impetus in life the basis for the unpleasantness of this idea 
may perhaps be found in an inner resistance in nature itself which forces man to include others in his scheme lest his own greedy desires should serve to destroy him but even with this inner demand in all the ethical and moral teachings of centuries it is everywhere evident that man has only very imperfectly learned that it is to his own interest to consider his neighbour and that it is impossible for him to ignore the needs of the body social of which he is a part externally the recognition of the strength of the ego impulse is objectionable because of the ideal conception that self-striving and so-called selfish seeking are unworthy ignoble and incompatible with a desirable character and must be ignored at all cost the futility of this attitude is to be clearly seen in the failure after all these centuries to even approximate it as evidenced in our human relations and institutions and is quite as ineffectual in this realm as in that of sexuality where the effort to overcome this imperious domination has been attempted by lowering the instinct and seeing in it something vile or unclean something unspeakable and unholy instead of destroying the power of sexuality this struggle has only warped and distorted injured and mutilated the expression for not without destruction of the individual can these fundamental instincts be destroyed life itself has needs and imperiously demands expression through the forms created all nature answers to this freely and simply except man his failure to recognize himself as an instrument through which the life energy is coursing and the demands of which must be obeyed is the cause of his misery despite his possession of intellect and self-consciousness he cannot without disaster to himself refuse the tasks of life and the fulfilment of his own needs man's great task is the adaptation of himself to reality and the recognition of himself as an instrument for the expression of life according to his individual possibilities it is in his privilege as a self-creator that his highest purpose is found the value of self-consciousness lies in the fact that man is enabled to reflect upon himself and learn to understand the true origin and significance of his actions and opinions that he may adequately value the real level of his development and avoid being self-deceived and therefore inhibited from finding his biological adaptation he need no longer be unconscious of the motives underlying his actions or hide himself behind a changed exterior in other words be merely a series of reactions to stimuli as the mechanists have it but he may to a certain extent become a self-creating and self-determining being indeed there seems to be an impulse towards adaptation quite as bergson sees it and it would seem to be a task of the highest order to use intelligence to assist oneself to work with this impulse through the investigation of these different avenues leading into the hidden depths of the human being and through the revelation of the motives and influences at work there although astonishing to the uninitiated a very clear and definite conception of the actual human relationship brotherhood of all mankind is obtained it is this recognition of these common factors basically inherent in humanity from the beginning and still active which is at once both the most hopeful and the most feared and disliked part of psychoanalysis it is disliked by those individuals who have prided themselves upon their superiority and the distinction between their reactions and motives and those of ordinary mankind in other words they attempt to become personalities through elevating themselves and lowering others and it is a distinct blow to discover that beneath these pretensions lie the very ordinary elements shared in common by all on the other hand to those who have 
been able to recognize their own weaknesses and have suffered in the privacy of their own souls the knowledge that these things have not set them apart from others but that they are the common property of all and that no one can point the finger of scorn at his fellow is one of the greatest experiences of life and is productive of the greatest relief it is feared by many who realize that in these painfully acquired repressions and symptoms lie their safety and their protection from directly facing and dealing with tendencies and characteristics with which they feel unable to cope the repression and the accompanying symptoms indicate a difficulty and a struggle and in this way are a sort of compromise or substitute formation which permit although only in a wasteful and futile manner the activity of the repressed tendencies nevertheless to analyze the individual back to his original tendencies and reveal to him the meaning of these substitute formations would be a useless procedure in which truly the last state of that man would be worse than the first if the work ceased there the aim is not to destroy those barriers upon which civilized man has so painfully climbed and reduce him to his primitive state but where these have failed or imperfectly succeeded to help him to attain his greatest possibilities with less expenditure of energy by less wasteful methods than nature provides in this achievement lies the hopeful and valuable side of this method the development of the synthesis it is hopeful because now a way is opened to deal with these primitive tendencies constructively and render their effects not only harmless but useful by utilizing them in higher aims socially and individually valuable and satisfactory this is what has occurred normally in those individuals who seem capable and constructive personalities in those creative minds that give so much to the race they have converted certain psychological tendencies which could have produced useless symptoms or destructive actions into valuable productions indeed it is not uncommon for strong capable persons to state themselves that they knew they could have been equally capable of a wasteful or destructive life this utilization of the energy or libido freed by removing the repressions and the lifting of infantile tendencies and desires into higher purposes and directions suitable for the individual at his present status is called sublimation it must not be understood by this discussion that geniuses or wonderful personalities can be created through analysis for this is not the aim of the procedure its purpose is to remove the inhibitions and restrictions which interfere with the full development of the personality to help individuals attain to that level where they really belong and to prepare people to better understand and meet life whether they are neurotic sufferers or so-called normal people with the difficulties and peculiarities which belong to all this reasoning and method of procedure is only new when the application is made to the human being in all improvements of plants and animals these general principles have been recognized and their teachings constructively utilized luther burbank that plant wizard whose work is known to all the world says a knowledge of the battle of the tendencies within a plant is the very basis of all plant improvement and it is not that the work of plant improvement brings with it incidentally as people mistakenly think a knowledge of these forces it is the knowledge of these forces rather which makes plant improvement possible has this not been also the mistake of man regarding himself and the cause partly at least of his failure to succeed in actually reaching a more advanced and stable development this recognition of man's biological relationship to all life and the practical utilization of this recognition necessitates a readjustment of thought and asks 
for an examination and reconsideration of the facts of human conduct which are observable by any thoughtful person a quiet and progressive upheaval of old ideas has taken place and is still going on analytic psychology attempts to unify and value all of the various phenomena of man which have been observed and noted at different times by isolated investigators of isolated manifestations and thus brings some orderly sequence into the whole it offers a method whereby the relations of the human being biologically to all other living forms can be established the actual achievement of man himself adequately valued and opens a vista of the possibilities of improvement in health happiness and accomplishment for the human being beatrice m hinkle end of section two